All right, let's turn our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Everybody there? You're probably already there. I woke up, and this is not uh, effects of that. I woke up um, Thursday morning at about 2 a.m., and I could not go back to sleep. Uh, you've probably had those mornings. Uh, a lot, it didn't have anything to do with coffee because I had gone to sleep. It, I think it, a lot had to do with the fact that I had spent so much time in this passage and, and not only that time of study, but taking that and honestly, the names and the faces of the people and the relationships that I had with those people over the last 52 years, both past and present, um, they kept coming to mind because of the devastation of sexual sin. Um, some were high-profile people who, due to their uh, positions, had made national and local news. Uh, some were family. Uh, some were just acquaintances. Some were fellow pastors and elders. Some were dear friends. Um, some were in churches that uh, we attended or I attended or they were even from churches uh, that I served. Some were involved in one-time failures. Some were habitual offenders. Two were even arrested and are currently in prison. And they just came by one after another. Uh, some, of course, fell into one or all of those categories. Some are, by the grace of God, recovering or have recovered um, but some, of course, continue to pick up the pieces of shattered hearts, much like glass on granite in your kitchen, because the shards are everywhere, and they're too numerous to count. Some have given in to the sin and continue to wreak havoc. And in each case, all of them we're professing believers. Everyone. And many of you have similar experiences. You have been fortunate to only be on the outside looking in. Uh, some of you have had the difficult opportunity to actually minister to those who have been touched by that type of sin. Uh, unfortunately, some of you have experienced it firsthand. And you know of the devastation that I'm speaking of. And it's a Honestly, it's a present reality for you. And some, again, let's be honest, some may be in a position where you need to repent tonight. Some of you, due to no fault of your own, need to cry out for help. But regardless of where you fall in this description, this passage is for all of us. The passage is for every single one of us. It's meant to warn, but it's also meant to encourage it's also meant to give us hope. And Paul does that as he calls us to walk as beloved children. We're going to pick up in chapter 5. I'm not going to read it again. Matt did a great job just for the sake of time. And I am going to read in segments as we work our way through. But we pick up in chapter 5 where we left off in chapter 4. And Paul is continuing his list of specific ways that we as Christians can live distinctively, how we can live differently than non-Christians around us. 
And for the sake of time, I, want, I think we could just jump in by saying it this way. No longer walk, Paul says, no longer walk as Gentiles do. Put off the old self, put on the new self. And then we come to chapter 5 where he gives us, and our outline tonight will be how we are to rest in hope, walk in love, and walk as light. Rest in hope, walk in love, and walk as light. Let's look first at resting in hope. In verse 1, Paul does what he has been doing throughout the letter, or really since we got to chapter 4. He's doing what he has been doing since we got to this imperative section. And what he's doing is he's laying a foundation for what he's about to call the Ephesians to do. He's laying a foundation for us as we hear those imperatives, and he's emphasizing and communicates clearly who they are and who we are in Jesus Christ. And that identity provides hope. That, that, that identity provided them hope, it should provide us hope. Notice he calls them imitators, or calls them to be imitators of God. And they are to mimic God, they are to do what He does. And as we said said last week, and and we'll say in just a moment, that Christ, being both God and man, provides the perfect example for us to follow. Imitate God, we can imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. And like I just shared with the children, the reason He calls them to do that, or expects that type of behavior from them, is because they are beloved children of the Father. And, And again, as I mentioned to them... Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 says that He predestined us to adoption as sons, as sons and daughters, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. He tells the Ephesians that they are children of His. They are brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are members of God's family, and there is a particular way to live. They are to imitate God. They're to imitate the Lord Jesus. And this is so very, very important as we begin to move through this particular passage and really as we have through the imperatives because they understand that their status and their position as children has been secured. It's unchangeable. And just as he says, uh, has said several times before, he's calling them to the expectations that he's laying out to them, the conduct or the behavior that he's expecting of them. He is able to do that because they are his because they are Christ, because they have been adopted, because their status or position are in Him. And, fortunately for them, that will not change. He even says down in verse 7, he says, For at one time you were darkness, but now, but now you are light in the Lord. We've, again, we've heard this over and over again. There was a way of life that they were accustomed to for those who were dead in their trespasses and sins in which they formerly walked. There was a lifestyle that they were accustomed to. They were separated in an enemy of God. But now they're different. The family is different. Their behavior is different as well. Notice he also in verse 3 calls them saints. They've been set apart for holy use by God. He has saved them and set them apart that they might live for Him. And so the hope that we hear tonight, the hope that the Ephesians heard is really twofold. One, He identifies them as children and saints. They aren't identified. 
the behavior that we are about to walk through, he does not use that to identify them. In other words, they are not identified by the behavior that he is about to explain. Period. They're identified by who they are in Christ. He's about to deal with very specific sin, a very specific group of sins that's, that's present within the church because it was prevalent within their culture. But he doesn't use that to identify them. He's not going to address them as if that's who they are. He's going to address them as those who are in Christ. Their identities are found in the Lord Jesus. They're children of God. They are saints. And he's expecting distinct behavior from them. And secondly, the hope comes from the fact that they, they will not lose that status. They will not lose that position. They will not lose that adoption because it is, has been secured, because it's been secured by the Lord Jesus. The adoption is complete and final. It's irreversible. And so their identity is secure. Their identity is found in Christ and His work on, that, on their behalf, not their good or bad behavior. And that is is hope. That there is hope there. And so before we move any farther tonight, I want to ask the question, are you resting in that same hope tonight? Are you resting in the same hope, and the same knowledge and security that you are a child of the Most High God? Are you resting in the hope that, that you have been saved on the basis of His work on your behalf, not your own work? Are you resting? And please notice I'm not asking yet if you're walking in a manner worthy of your calling. I'm asking, are you resting? I'm asking if you're resting in the hope of your position, that position that's irreversible, that, that status, that, that justification, that declaration that you are not guilty before a holy God because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you resting that His atoning work, His wrath-absorbing work, His work on the cross has been credited to your account? His, His life of righteousness has been credited to your account. His taking of the punishment that you deserve. Are you resting in that? Are you resting in Him? Well, having laid that foundation... Paul then calls the Ephesians to walk in love. To walk in love. Love is to be a virtue that is continually exhibited in the life of a believer. It's something that should be ever-present. It should be a part of everyday life. And he provides a very, again, a very specific example of what that love looks like or looked like. He says, walk in love as Christ loved us. Walk in love as Christ loved us. In other words, we are to walk in love and we are to live a life of ongoing love because we ourselves have been loved in that way. We have been loved in a specific way. We have been loved by Christ. He is our example. He led the way. And because He's loved us, we are able to love in that way in return. He's shown us what that love looks like. And Paul describes what that is. He says, walk in love as Christ loved us. Giving Himself up for us. He gave Himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. He gave Himself for us. He sacrificed Himself for us. He laid down His life for us. 
for our benefit. And it was pleasing to God for Him to do that. So if we were to boil all that down and we were to look for a definition of love that Paul gives us here in this passage, we would say this. Love is giving of oneself to the point of sacrifice on the behalf of others. I'm going to say that again because it's going to be very, very important as we walk through this passage. Love is the giving of oneself to the point of sacrifice on behalf of others. And this isn't new to Paul. This is something that Jesus, of course, taught. He says so in John 15, verses 12 to 13. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another. As I have loved you, greater love has no one than this than one lay down his life for his friends. That's what Paul is saying. We've mentioned this numerous times since we began our study in Ephesians in September. And especially as we walk through uh, Isaiah around Christmas. But Christ's love was expressed to us as, as He condescended and took on flesh. He condescended, took on flesh, he left the glory of the right hand of God the Father. And and while remaining God, he took on flesh and entered into our suffering and to our sorrow and to the rejection and to the distress and the weaknesses that are all a part of being human so that he could save us. He condescended to take on our transgressions. Our iniquities, our need, our guilt, our uh, spiritual and moral wrong. And Paul says that we are to love in the same manner. We are to love in the same manner. We are to give of ourselves for the benefit of others around us. Giving of ourselves to the point of sacrifice for their benefit. And of course that love costs us something. That love costs us In terms of our time, it costs us of our emotional and physical energy. It costs us in terms of our resources. And it involves a setting aside of our personal desires and our wants. Because we're looking out for what is in the best interest of those around us. And of course, how are we able to do that? Well, we're able to do that because we have been loved in that way. We have been loved perfectly. We have been loved to the extent that we no longer actually need the love and acceptance of other people. And what does that mean? Having been loved perfectly by Christ, we can now love one another without expecting anything in return. I don't need anything of you, so I am now able to pour myself out and love you. Because I'm not looking to use you in any way because because I need you in some way. Christ loved us in that way. We can love others in that way. And it's through the gospel that we are given the power by His Spirit to love as we've been called to love. And Paul says this is very distinct from the world. And he's about to show us how. Just how distinct this love is. Having just provided an example of what it looks like to walk in love. He then lays out and is, is going to lay out for us the description of, of what walking in love doesn't look like. So he, he's given us and shown us what love does look like. Now he's going to show us what love doesn't look like. And he says, but sexual immorality 
and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. And what he's describing is rather explicit. Uh, The lifestyles of those in Ephesus were deplorable, and it's not as if our culture is any better. Uh, But for the sake of our younger, uh, younger ears, I want to simply say that these verses are referring to any sexual behavior outside of the marriage between one man and one woman. That catches a whole lot of things under that umbrella. Any sexual behavior outside of the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. And he describes those very distinctly. He calls them sexual evil, sexual self-indulgence, sexual self-gratification. And it all takes place regardless of the cost to others. So the epitome of sexual sin, I believe can be summarized this way. It's the taking for oneself to the point of self-indulgence at the expense of another. Do you hear the differences? Paul says in Christ, we are to love, we are to give of ourselves. He says the opposite of that in sexual sin is the taking for oneself. Giving of oneself versus taking, or giving of oneself versus taking for oneself. He says love is giving oneself to the point of sacrifice. But he says sexual sin is taking to the point of self-indulgence. Giving to the point of sacrifice, taking to the point of self-indulgence. And then he says, love is for the benefit of others. And he says, sexual sin is at the expense of others. Paul couldn't be more clear that there is an exact opposite. There is such a stark difference between loving others and sexual sin. And then... As he as he explains these types of sins, he then says they must not even be named be named among you. Paul says that whether or not these behaviors, he's, what he's saying is whether or not these behaviors are allowed is not even up for discussion. It's it's not a debate. He's saying I'm not even going to spend the time answering any arguments for the Christian being allowed to participate in these sins. And then he takes it one step farther. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. He says, these behaviors are contrary to the will of God and the new nature and to love. And not only are Christians not to participate in them, they're not even to be named among them. They're not to be talked about. Listen, they're not even to be, well, we're to abstain from that sexual evil. We're to abstain from that sexual self-indulgence. We're to abstain from the sexual self-gratification. We aren't to talk about them. We're not to make light of them. We're not to laugh at them. We're not to be entertained by them or joke about them in any way. He's pretty strong. And he says, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving. 
They're to be grateful for what they have, resting in God's provision and not seeking to indulge themselves as if God is keeping something back for them in some way, as if God is some type of cosmic killjoy and, and not want anybody to experience any kind of pleasure. That's not who God is. We need to remember who He is and all that He's done for us and be grateful for all that we have in Him. And then He goes on and He adds this warning. I mean, He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is, who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. He says, don't succumb to sexual temptation. Don't succumb to the participation in sexual sin. Don't talk about it. Don't laugh about it. Don't entertain it. Don't joke about it. Don't partner with it. Don't be in fellowship with those who are making it a part of their everyday life. Don't, don't fellowship and participate those who are overly involved with or closely tied to those who, whose lifestyles are marked by this day-to-day indulgence of this behavior and this kind of sin. And he gives three reasons. He's very clear in his reasons. He says, one, those who live uh, or those whose lives are characterized by this kind of behavior, he very clearly says that if they're involved in that ongoing sexual sin, they will not, are not, and will not be saved if it continues. Secondly, he says, don't fellowship with them because inevitably they, they will experience the wrath of God and in many cases they already are experiencing the judgment of God. And then thirdly, he says, don't participate in fellowship with them because they're going to try to talk you into thinking that everything's okay. They're going to try to talk you into believing that everything is okay. They're going to try to excuse it. They're going to try to get you to condone it. They're going to try to convince you that it's not a sin. They're going to try to convince you that it's not harmful to themselves or to others. They're going to try to convince you and and ask you to approve of what they're doing. And they're going to try to deceive you into thinking that they are actually in loving relationships. But what have we just seen? It's the exact opposite of love. And they're going to say, if you really love me, you would accept what I'm doing. And Paul says, you you can't buy that. Don't be deceived by that. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to leave some specific applications for you to walk through. We have small group questions in the back of the bulletin. Our small groups are going to be talking about this pretty in depth and applying Uh, This particular point, I encourage you to be a part of that. If you can't be in a small group, take those questions home and and ask those of yourself. Walk through those. Take advantage of those. Uh, But I, I need to move on to the third point of walking as light. Look at verse 8. Paul says, Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. 
for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Just as he did in verse two, Paul straightforwardly, matter of factly calls the Ephesians and us to live habitually, not just in the light, but as children of light. We are to be light. And this walking, like the walking in love, is to be a continual thing, a day-by-day thing, a continual exercise. And as he, as he did back earlier in, in that first point, he describes what that looks like by giving us three descriptors. And he says first that those who walk as light strive to seek to exhibit fruit that is characterized by goodness or being good, righteous, and holy, or goodness, righteousness, and, and truthfulness, excuse me, truthfulness. And really what he's doing is basically summarizing what we have been going through over the last two chapters. He's just saying it again. Why? Because we need to hear it once again. If we're walking as light, we're going to live for the good of our neighbor. If we're walking as light, we're going to strive to to uphold the standard that's been presented before us. If we're walking as, as light, we're going to speak the truth in love. We're going to serve out of that love or out of that truth. Secondly, he also says that those who walk as light, are, they, they strive to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, not only do they do what is right, they're motivated by, by what is right or they're motivated by the right things or the right thing. In other words, they're going to look to God, they're going to look to the Lord Christ and their desire is going to please Him. Their desire is going to be to serve Him and to love Him, to bring glory to Him, to delight in Him. They're not seeking, again, as we said when we began, they're not seeking to secure a position. They're living out of grace and gratitude for the position that they already have. And then thirdly, he says, those who walk as light not only... Uh, don't participate in unfruitful or fruitless behaviors, as we mentioned above, but they also expose them. They expose them. I believe that happens in a couple of ways. Uh, First, it happens as we live distinctively in our culture. As we live uh, among those, we're choosing to live fruitfully in goodness and righteousness and truth, and we speak distinctively to those around us. We speak the truth in love. Uh, we not only refuse to participate in that sin, but we, we point out that it is sin. And we do so by, by not withdrawing. Right? We don't participate in fellowship, but we also, we also don't withdraw. We also don't pull back. We don't disengage from the culture around us. We engage through occasional interactions and conversations with those who are regularly participating in these lifestyles. We take precautions and we use good judgment on how often and where and when we have these conversations because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good morals. So we're to use discernment. We're to to use the wisdom that we've been given and so we look to please the Lord by, by choosing our interactions wisely and, 
and how much of conversations that we are to have and where, where those things take place. And, and our desire should always, bring to, should always be to bring truth to bear on those particular situations. We want to bring the gospel to bear in these conversations because it's through the light of God's word, it's through the light of the gospel of Christ that darkened hearts, minds, and lives are changed. It's through the Lord Jesus who is the light and by His Spirit that those who are dead are brought to spiritual life. And if we withdraw and if we disengage, we're, we're, we're pulling back the gospel that is so desperately needed. We need to engage. But secondly, our exposure to... Um, or, or our exposing of, of the truth, the exposing of that which is sin, um, it also happens as we live distinctively with, within, uh, within our lives with each other as believers. And that living and speaking looks the same in many ways. Because we want to be consistent both inside and outside of the church. And so we want to have those conversations and, and, and we want to spend time talking with each other about sin and pointing out sin that we may become aware of. And we want to point that sin out with one another and walk through that together. And we need to be willing to, to confront that sin that we obviously see. But sometimes I, I think we can be so focused on pointing out the sins of others that we fail to do something that's just as important. I think the exposing of sin can be a little more personal. One way is for us to be willing to expose our own sin. Another way to put that would be maybe we should... We should be more apt to confessing our sins one to another. Bringing light on our own to the sin or sins that we're struggling with. The sins we wrestle with, the sins we battle with, the sins that we become so entangled with and we have trouble mortifying and putting to death. We, kind of, we keep these things hidden. We keep them close to the cuff. We, 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 really, we keep them in darkness. We're embarrassed by them. We're ashamed of them. And we're scared of how others might react. And so we remain hiding in the darkness. And that culture needs to be different. Here. That culture needs to be different here. We need to create a culture as those resting in hope and walking in light and as light where, where people feel secure enough to share of those struggles. They feel secure enough to confess their sins because they know we will point them to Jesus. Personally, I'm tired of getting surprised. I would rather deal with it head on.
I'd rather you be honest than for me to find out once again that it was going on all the while and I didn't know. I'm tired of that. And I know many of you are too. We need to create a culture where that's different. That we would be willing to expose those struggles and temptations and sins that have led to other sins, that lead to other sins, and have now left a horrible path of destruction in their wake. This should not be here. And another way of exposing sin and bringing it to light is how the sins of others have affected us. Some people are hiding in the darkness and in the shadows, not because of what they have done, but because of what has been done to them. They've been victimized and traumatized, particularly by sexual sin, and they've taken on a great deal of unnecessary guilt and shame that is not theirs to take, and it builds over time. The more they stay in the dark, and emotional walls are built, the thickness of which they can't get through, because, and no wonder they, they're defensive and they're protecting themselves, they don't want to be hurt again. And I get it. But that culture needs to change as well. And we need to be a place that develops a culture as those resting in hope and walking in life, that it's safe and secure and enables people to come out into the light and share with us the devastating nature of the sins that have been committed against them. That we might walk with them, arm in arm, helping them through that devastation, coming out, breaking down those emotional walls that have built, been built up over years, because Paul says, light creates light. Hope, joy, peace, freedom. And both of these ways in which we can expose sin, the only way we're going to do that is if we're resting in the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. Period. Everyone in here. 